That was drummer and 2012 NEA Jazz Master Jack DeJeanette in a live solo performance at the 1997 Modern Drummer Festival. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Widely regarded as one of the great drummers in modern jazz, Jack DeJeanette's wide-ranging style makes him a dynamic sideman and bandleader. He's played with virtually every major jazz figure from the 1960s to the present day, including NEA jazz masters Herbie Hancock, Ornette Coleman, Sonny Rollins, and Abby Lincoln. He's also an accomplished keyboardist, having studied classical piano for 10 years before taking up drums. The Chicago-born, New York-based Dijonette has a playlist that goes on for pages. But here are some highlights. He was a charter member of the Charles Lloyd Quartet. He played with Miles Davis's pioneering band in the late 60s, early 70s, performing on the seminal album, Bitches Brew. He's had a decades-long partnership with pianist Keith Jarrett, performing with him in various bands, including the acclaimed Keith Jarrett, Gary Peacock, Jack DeJeanette Trio. He's led several groups, including Directions and Special Editions, all this while he's also enjoyed a diverse and successful solo career. In 2005, DeJeanette launched an independent record label, Golden Beams Productions. He wanted an outlet for a broad range of creative projects. The label produced Peacetime, on which he's both featured artist and co-producer, which won a Grammy. Jack DeJeanette is the recipient of many awards and accolades. He's been named Drummer of the Year numerous times by various jazz publications, and this year he was named an NEA Jazz Master. I spoke to Jack DeJeanette soon after he was told about the NEA Award. We spoke on the porch of his home in the beautiful Catskill Mountains, and you'll hear birds and the occasional plane in the background. In this, the first of a two-part interview, Jack talks about his musical influences, his affinity for jazz, and his early career. According to Jack, his love affair with music began in childhood. I was drawn to music very early. My mother and my uncle were um, musically inclined, and should we say creative people. I mean, my uncle, his hobby was jazz. He loved music, and my mother wrote poetry and songs. I heard she wrote Stormy Monday? Yeah, she sold it to T-Bone Walker for $50. Amazing. How about that? I was really on the case if that song came up for public domain, I'd go <laughs> But after a certain point, that public domain, you know, had the copyright. But yeah, she wrote a lot of poetry. I used to put uh, harmony to, you know, chords to her uh, words and uh, songs. And what music did you grow up listening to? I grew up listening to everything. I mean, jazz was a big part of it. But when I was a young kid, my uncle had a lot of the jazz 78s, the uh, lacquered records, and we had an old Vic Troller. I used to play, crank it up, and put these uh, Decca records and OK and Columbia 78s of uh, Duke Ellington and Louis Jordan and um, Count Basie. Later on, uh, Dusty Fletcher, Slim Gaylord. I was fascinated by the music. Even before I could read, I could tell by the the uh, label colors which record I wanted to hear. Um, and also, 
I started, you know, as as common custom with the families around that time in the 40s, mid-40s, and into the 50s. You know, you took uh, music lessons. So I took piano lessons. And so, you know, eventually, you know, I listened to the radio. We had a shortwave radio, and I used to listen to the European music, opera, and and folk music. And in Chicago, there was a lot of uh, gospel, R&B. You know, it was a big hub of a lot of eclectic music there. And I used to just listen to all of it, and I never classified it. You know, I just used to like all these genres of music. There was a lot of... uh, a lot of influences around. When did you start playing jazz on the piano? My uncle, who is Roy Wood. Uh, who was a journalist. Right, who got inducted in the Smithsonian. And he actually was my influence for getting me into jazz because of his love of it. First, he was a historic because he became the first black news broadcaster on an all-white, what was formerly an all-white station. So he's kind of broke the color barrier there. And then from there on, he moved on and uh, became a jazz DJ before he became the journalist. Because of that, he had access to a lot of the jazz records because they were being sent to him, so I had access to them. So it was great for me. It was the money I saved from that. And when I was in uh, high school, I had a combo, and the drummer left his drums in my house. So I got into the drums, uh, naturally, and I used to play with the records, my my, my uncle's jazz records. And so I found out that I was quite proficient at the drums. That's when I started playing both instruments. So I used to practice every day because we had a house where I could play, and my mother would go to work, and, and I could play in the living room, and I'd you know, spent three, four hours a day on each instrument. Until I got up to a point where I was hired on drums as well as a piano. What was your first major gig? Was it with piano or was it with drums? With piano. I was well known in Chicago as a pianist. Chicago was a great town for all, like I said before, all the music, but for jazz, there was jazz all over the city. And I was fortunate to have some great mentors to help me. Um, actually, the late father of Deval Patrick. Who's governor of Massachusetts. Pat Patrick was a, a mentor to me. He helped me learn uh, chord changes and standard tunes. And when I came to New York later, He let me stay at his house so I could save enough money to get an apartment for myself. 
Well, while we're still in Chicago, let's talk about Mulhall Richard Abrams, who was also, you said, a great influence. Oh, yeah. Mulhall, uh, he had an open-door policy. I mean, he, roomed, he lived in a rooming house, and he had this small room with a bed in it and a piano. And he lived there, and he was amazing. He was a self-taught musician who went to the library and taught himself harmony, theory, how to play the clarinet, how to compose for orchestra. He used to say, you don't need a lot of money to learn all of this. You know, it's free at the library. But he applied himself. You know, personal things in life, if I had problems, I could talk to him about it uh, as a sort of male role model. And, you know, he encouraged me to come to New York, you know, later on. And he said, yeah, he said, man, you know, it's no different in Chicago. He said the only difference is it's just more of it. (laughs) (laughs) It's the same thing. It's just more of it. When did you make the switch to drums exclusively? When did you decide drums would be your main instrument, your main voice? Well, okay, that that happened when I came to New York. But prior to that, I was playing around Chicago on both instruments. And um, I was pretty uh, competent as a a drummer and I was doing gigs there and uh, I used to play jam sessions at a club on Cottage Grove again on Chicago's south side on 63rd and it was a club called McKee Fitzhugh's Bar Lounge where a lot of groups used to play uh, Art Blakey the Jazz Messengers, Sonny Rollins and uh, Coltrane played there Uh, you know I used to play the jam sessions at this place and one night, uh, Elvin was late for the last set, and uh, the place was packed. People outdoors, people were waiting for the next set, and uh, and so McKeevich said to McColtrain, "Listen, you know we got to go up. You know, let Jack Dejanet. He's a good drummer. He plays damn sessions, but we need to go to the bandstand." So John didn't bat an eye. He did. He just nodded his head, went up to the bandstand, and I sat in and I played three songs. So uh, for me, I was like, you know, I've been playing at home with the records, so I knew the material. And it was such a such a big high for me because, uh, you know, here's a, John didn't know me from Adam. The trust, I mean, McCoy and Jimmy Garrison never looked at me like, who's this guy? Can he play? You know, it was like completely trusted. And of course, I was able to, you know, hold my own until Alvin came back. And that was a, an, an incredible feeling, you know, just to have that opportunity to play with Coltrane. Of course, I was high for, for months on in after that. I've heard it, his intensity was extraordinary as he performed. Oh, yeah. It was, it was uh, not too, too many like him. Ravi, his son, has that, has that in his genes. He tapped into something very, very unique and very, very strong, very, very passionate and very, very spiritual. It's been said he put the own back in, into jazz music. Now, how did you establish yourself in New York? You know, I had played some with some of the musicians who came through Chicago from New York, like uh, the musicians who played with Art Blakey's band. I, I jammed with Freddie Hubbard and Reggie Workman. So I knew some of them, and John Hicks and Don Pullen. And these two guys actually stayed at my house on their way up to uh, New York. So uh, I made some connections. But when I came to New York, I took $27 um, 
and uh, a drum set, a Gretsch drum set that I bought, no cases, threw it underneath the Greyhound bus, and went up for a weekend. And I checked in at the time. That's when musicians came for $2.75 a day. You could stay at the Sloan Y House, YMCA. Anyway, I, I went there. And the first night I got there, I went up to Minton's before it closed up in Harlem. And who was playing there with Freddie Hubbard with uh, another Chicagoan on piano, Harold Mayburn, who actually was from Memphis. But uh, spent a lot of time in Chicago. He was playing in the band, and F- Freddie, you know, let me sit in with the band. And uh, I'll never forget that because he had been playing Max Roach, and Max Roach, who would play with Charlie Parker, they used to play the fastest tempos ever. And so Freddie called just one of those things <laughs> at one of those horse race speeds. Fortunately, I I could play it. It's like, you know, okay, you're coming to New York. That's the initiation. Anyway, after that, I played two or three more tunes. So happened to be in the house, the great organist, John Patton, big John Patton. And he said to me, hey, man, you got a set of drums. You got a gig. I said, yeah, I have some. So I got the gig with him and stayed at the Sloan house. Pat Patrick was in New York. I said, Pat, I I want to save up some money and get an apartment. So he said, don't come, you can stay with me. He had a small apartment, but I slept on the couch, and I was able to save enough enough money for security and get an apartment. So through the village, help came. I remember reading you talking about visiting the Five Spot when you first came. Oh, yeah, all the great places were still going on. Actually, Birdland was there. When I moved, I finally got an apartment. I found a nice apartment. It was around the corner from a place which was famous, a jazz club that had just opened up in the mid-60s called Slugs in the Far East. (laughs) Anyway, after I moved in, I um, went around to the Five Spot. The Five Spot was located on um, 3rd Avenue and 8th street. I was lucky enough to go and see people like Albert Daly, Roy Haynes, Wayne Shorter. And the fire spot was fantastic uh, because people like Monk and Wayne Mingus could go play this place and you play there two weeks, go in and you did well, you stay for a month or two. So guys had a chance to develop bands because they were in one place and can play night after night, so there's just consistency. So it was really, really fantastic. I mean, uh, I I used to see Chick Corea and Joe Farrell and Roy Haynes there, and uh, it was it was a very fantastic place. Yeah. The Charles Lloyd Quartet. How did that evolve? Well, you know, I got into freelancing around in the city and. Actually, playing at Slugs, and you know, there were lots of groups who played there. I was sitting in one night, and Kenny Dorham was playing. And I finished, well, after Kenny played his solo, <laughs> he literally jumped off the stand and turned around and said, Where did this cat come from? You know, and the village, 
it's like word of mouth passed around. There's a new guy in town. There's a new drummer in town. There's a new horn player in town. So word got around, and I'm leading up to Charles Lloyd. And Charles Tolliver been, had been playing in Jackie McLean's band. And I bring this up because the Jackie McLean group preceded the Charles Lloyd band. And in that band consisted of some really legendary players, Bobby Hutchinson on Vibes, and myself, Charles Tolliver, and Larry Ridley on the bass. So we played, you know, we played the Left Bank Jazz Society in Baltimore, and we played Pittsburgh, and we played around New York City, we played Slugs. And as a matter of fact, it was when I was playing with Jackie McLean at Slugs that Miles Davis came around to hear, hear me play. It was at that time Jackie said to me, he said, you're going to be Miles' drummer one day. Because he said, Miles and I have the same taste of drummers. And actually, it was Jackie who discovered Tony Williams. And Tony played with Jackie. And of course, Miles snatched him away. And uh, he said, Miles is going to be after you eventually. There's a word that got around. It was so fantastic, you know. It's like it's like a village, like like in the indigenous world, you know, the village where it goes around. So after that, I, I used to see Charles playing in slugs. At the time, he had a band with Gabor Zabo, the great Hungarian, legendary great guitarist from uh, Budapest. And the band, I think he had... Reggie Workman, and I think it was Pete LaRocca was on drums. And so that band split up, and then we decided, we talked about forming a new band. Then um, the subject came up of a piano player, and I had heard Keith Jarrett with uh, Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, and Charles had heard Keith in Boston. So between us, we both said, okay, we need to get this guy. You know, we had a rehearsal at Charles's, and that's when the quartet was formed. And our first gig was at the Left Bank Jazz Society in Baltimore. Quartet is just phenomenal for so many reasons, but it also really is one of the first crossover jazz ensembles. Yeah, it, it's one of them. At that particular time, there was also some other groups yeah, in sure. that period because it was a very fertile time of experimentation. I'll put in, just interject, in between that time with Jackie and the time I got for Charles Lloyd, I also served my time with some fantastic vocalists. One was Abby Lincoln with a trio with Reggie Workman and Cedar Walton. And also played with Betty Carter, late great Betty Carter. And it was actually while I was working with her that I left and went with Charles 
Lloyd, which she wasn't too happy about. <laughs> but these are great training training grounds for me, and especially playing with singers. As a drummer, you really have to be sensitive, and dynamics was very, very important. So I learned quite a bit. I also learned a lot about dynamics from playing with Jackie, too. You're a big drummer, but you're not a loud, loud, loud drummer, and you somehow manage to do both. Yeah, I mean, in my early days, I was I was pretty pretty raw. <laughs> I got accused of that. But, you know, many years since then. Time tempers us all. Yeah, yeah. In a good way. I've been fortunate so far. It's been pretty good. Now, am I right that with Charles Lloyd, you played the Fillmore East down in the village? We actually preempted the Miles going going there. I mean, in that period, too, we had uh, that. I'll just give a picture of what New York and what the United States was at that time. And around the Beast Village, there was a place called the Electric Circus. And it, before that, it was called the Balloon Farm. And it was funny because groups like the Free Spirits. Groups used to come in there and experiment. And I remember I went there one night, and there was this group. Nobody heard, and they weren't announced. And all of a sudden, they were playing some jazz, soft jazz. And then all of a sudden, he heard, Sing a simple song. And, and it, it was uh, Sly and the Family Stone. They were trying out material unannounced, just to see how people would react. And of course, everybody was like, who is that? You know. And I was during that period, I think the Charles Lloyd Quartet, I think we had uh, we had released Dreamweaver, which had we had a mild hit called Sombrero Sam, a crossover hit on that. Anyway, it was, a, like I said before, it was a fertile period of uh, lots of different types of music and genres were crossing over. And uh, the public was really open to it. The American audiences were really great. And, of course, Charles L. Quartet spent a lot of time in Europe, and, you know, we did our groundbreaking uh, appearance in the uh, Soviet Union, which uh, we have a document of that. Uh, I guess six, six albums that we did. Now, Miles Davis, you were with him for two years? Three years. Three years. Yeah. What was What was that experience like for you? Well, you know... Coming up in Chicago and having played with all these master musicians, great musicians on records, and come to New York and then play with these people that I listened to was, you know, I was like a kid in a candy store. I mean, it was it was really, really uh, exciting to play with the best, you know, and learn from the best. So I first got the opportunity to play with Miles when Tony Williams was not available with the band. And... Um, uh, we played uh, the Vanguard a number of times, and we played in uh, Washington D.C. And that was that band consisted of uh, Wayne Shorter, Ron Carter, and, Her- and Herbie. And you know, Miles was playing straight ahead stuff, and I was still with Charles Lloyd Quartet. Then um, I was with uh, Bill Evans for a while. And that period, I'd been playing with Stan Getz and then went to Bill Evans. And then Miles hired me for Bill Evans. At that point, uh, Chick Corea and uh, Dave Holland became the rhythm section. Wayne remained. And then at this period, it was uh, Miles' crossover period. And I think it started with uh, 
Well, I guess, well, it started when Miles did Philly uh, the Kid in Jail, and then um, in a silent way. And Miles started moving, you know, started new directions in music by Miles Davis. And uh, doing these marathon uh, recording sessions with his favorite musicians on the instruments and all in the studio together. Um, I appeared on Bitches Brew. I mean, nobody thought that well, everything that Miles did, you knew was was making some history. The music wasn't difficult, but what it was, it was groove-oriented music, and he wrote sketches, little melodies, some chords, bass riffs, and had the drums find the groove. I mean, the groove was right. You know, meanwhile, Tio Macero, who was a great producer, who put this stuff together and, you know, made sense of all the tracks that we did, you know, put all of these things together. So we would just do all these things and then, uh, you know, play these grooves. So when these grooves were get get the right place, and Miles would cue different players to come in and, and play solo. Then he'd cue them out, and then uh, the table stopped, and we started something else. So it was like creative work in progress. Miles was really excited because he had access to this big, big Columbia studio down on 53rd Street or 52nd. And he could just create on the spot, you know, and document it. So it was a very, very, very productive period for him. Did playing with him affect the way you approached drumming? Well, Miles loved drums. So, you know, I had to follow, you know, Tony Williams. You know, I had all these other influences, but I had to bring my own, establish my own voice in it. And uh, I was allowed to do that. Miles, again, one of the great attributes to the greats like Mark and uh, Mingus and uh, Miles and Coltrane was that they trusted musicians. They had musicians that could think for themselves. But they had a way of bringing just through their whole charisma of bringing out the best of the musician. So everybody was like, would play their best for Miles. You know, he had that kind of thing. Or for train, but they had this kind of thing to trust. So he led by doing. In other words, he led by how he played his instrument, and a few th- times that he made comments or made suggestions. They were always good suggestions. They made sense. What I learned from Miles was what not to do, what not to play. Sometimes it's what's left out that makes more of a big impact. Sometimes less means more. What kind of impact do you think your drumming had on Miles's work? Well, to quote Miles, Miles said in his book, his autobiography, that Jack had played a kind of groove he just loved to play over. What did you say? You said playing is about 
listening and holding back until you're hearing what other people are playing and giving them the space. Mm-hmm. I'm paraphrasing you, mm-hmm. but giving them the space to do mm-hmm. their own thing. Yeah, I think it's important. The drums is a musical instrument, and they be t- they're tuned, and the drummer has the job of inspiring, bringing out of the soloist and the rest of the band things that they probably wouldn't do otherwise. You have to be a good listener. That's an important thing. You know, sometimes I won't respond necessarily to a, a rhythm or something that's played because I want to give them space. But then I may play something against the player to complement what they're doing, if it makes sense, if it feels right. And that's an intuitive thing. Music is very intuitive, and listening is part of it. And playing grooves, I love grooves. I love to play grooves. But I love to sit and uh, just milk it for all it's got. That was drummer and 2012 jazz master Jack DeJeanette. Next week, part two of my conversation with Jack. You'll hear some wonderful music, as well as Jack's thoughts on his long collaboration with Keith Jarrett, his groundbreaking composition, Song in the Key of Ohm, and his soon-to-be-released CD, Sound Travels. If you love jazz, you can't miss the 2012 NEA Jazz Masters Concert and Awards Ceremony. It takes place at 7.30 on January 10th, at Jazz at Lincoln Center. Along with Jack, the NEA is honoring Vaughn Friedman, Charlie Hayden, Jimmy Owens, and Sheila Jordan. The concert sold out, but you don't have to miss the action because we're webcasting it live. Go to arts.gov and click on Jazz Masters for more information about this free event and live webcast. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpts from Love Ship, composed by Charles Lloyd and performed live by the Charles Lloyd Quartet in June 1968, used courtesy of Forest Farm Music. Excerpts from Pharaoh's Dance and Miles Runs the Voodoo Down, from the CD Bitches Brew, composed by Miles Davis, used courtesy of Sony Entertainment Music and Universal Music Publishing Group and East St. Louis Music, Inc. Excerpts from Home, from the soon-to-be-released CD, Sound Travels, composed and performed by Jack DeJeanette, used courtesy of Golden Beans Productions, E1 Music, and DL Media. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov, and you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog, or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.